Today's uh, scripture is going to be taken from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Thanks, Nick. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing uh, to come together. It's a blessing to come now before your word. Uh, Father, we admit our own inabilities uh, to understand you, our own inadequacies in beginning to comprehend just who you are and how great you are. So, Father, we pray just for a glimpse today. God, we pray that as you uh, have inspired your word, as you have spoken to every generation, God, we pray that in this time that we have together, your same spirit would be at work in us and through us, uh, that we may know you, we may see you for who you are, and may glorify you uh, for all that you've done. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In our world today, there are any number of false ideas, misconceptions about who God is and, and what He's like and, and what He does. And so it's no surprise that everywhere we go, we get inundated with kind of uh, false ideas about, about God. Um, one of the things that you will hear kind of not just, I mean, yeah, there are other major world religions who have, uh, you know, incorrect ideas about God, but even just kind of in the, the, the culture we're in, just the water we're swimming in, many times the way people talk about God isn't accurate, is it? Many times people will speak of God as a, as a higher power, you know, as some kind of uh, uh, spiritual force or, or the powers that be, or they'll say things like, well, I guess the universe just didn't want me to do this, that, or the other. You, do you hear things like that? People talk about this very impersonal force that's just kind of out there and, and makes things happen uh, according to some, some uh, you know, hidden plan. There was a, a research uh, group a, a number of years ago, just a handful of years ago, they kind of surveyed across the United States, you know, what generally people believe. About 10% of people uh, said they don't believe in any kind of God, you know, altogether. About 56% uh, of people said they believe in God according to the Bible, or at least the way they, you know, understood that. But they left about a third, about 33%, who said they just believed in a, in a higher power. They believed in some kind of spiritual force, a spiritual force or a higher power in the world. A third of people would describe in the United States, would describe God that way, or what they think of as God, as just a, a higher power. 
Now, certainly God is higher than us in understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Certainly there's nothing more powerful than Him. Certainly there's nothing that has a, a greater force than God. But if God is just some kind of spiritual force, then he, you can't really know Him. He, he would just be a, a thing, an object, a, a force, a power. And that is not the way the Bible describes God. God is not a force or a substance or a material or an object or an influence or anything like that. God is personal. God is personal. You and I are created in the image of God. We are people. We are different and distinct personalities. And God, we get that from God. God himself is personal, which is why we can know him as a father. He's not just a force that just pushes us around in the world. He's not just a, a spiritual being that's mysterious and nebulous and confusing. He's, he's personal. He's personal. And we can know him. There's another uh, false conception idea of God, uh, picturing him as this old man, usually with a big white beard, right? Sitting on some kind of throne or rocking chair in the, in the, in the clouds. And, and usually with that comes along this idea that he's, he's probably less likely to smile than he is to tell you to get off his grass. You know what I mean? It's like picturing God like some kind of old, cranky man who's just up there do, you know, running the show in his own way, right? Well, that, you know, at least, God, at least it's personal, but that's no way a picture of how God is. In the Bible, we find God the Father who loves God the Son and has loved God the Son for all of eternity. So at His very core, God is love, not cranky and angry, right? He is love. He is holy. He's perfect. He is righteous. He cares about holiness. At His very core, God is love. One of the more false ideas that's probably a little easier to, to creep into the church than, than the first two is that at the core, God is a, is a stickler for the rules. And again, God is holy. I'm not saying He's not. Of course, He is holy. And, and we wouldn't say it that way. What we might say is something like, uh, you know, I, if somebody asks about your faith or, or, or Christianity or why you go to church, we say things like, well, I try to be a good person, right? I try, I try to be a good person. And maybe you kind of look at your life and you, you, you kind of weigh out the good and the bad. And you say, well, I do, I do some bad, but my good outweighs the bad. And that's how we kind of primarily think of ourselves is in that, on that scale. And maybe you approach the Bible and say, well, I've heard and read some, some rules in here. And so your, your primary concept of the Bible is this is a rule book. This is a list of commands, a list of do's and don'ts. And you try more often than not to do the do's and don't do the don'ts, right? And that... You know, there's nothing maybe totally wrong about that, but at its most foundational, that's, that's not who God is. That's not the way the Bible speaks of Him, and that's not what the Bible is about. There's something major missing from that kind of perception of what it means to be a Christian. And that main thing is our relationship with God. If God Himself in His core is love, we are created to know Him and to love Him and to enjoy a relationship from, with Him from now for eternity. Yes, there are absolutely rules in the Bible, but they are meant to serve as, as guardrails along the path. The foundational thing is that we spend now and for eternity walking with God. And the guardrails just help us stay on that path. They're important. You don't want to jump off the cliff. But the core, it's about knowing who God is. Many people who are even mature Christians will, will say, okay, no, no, it's not about works. I was saved by grace. I was saved by grace. But then they might say something like, well, now that I'm a Christian, 
I have to try really hard to be good so that God is happy with me. I have to try really hard. And it just kind of delays the works-based idea of what our faith is about. We know that we come into the faith by grace, but we also stay in the faith by grace. It's all God. It's all a gift. We are not just saved in order to do good works. We are saved to a relationship that involves good works. But at its core, we are saved for knowing God. That is what it means to be a Christian. At the core of our, of our faith is a relationship with a personal God. We have a personal God whom we can know and a personal God who knows us. That's the way the Bible speaks about God. God is love, the very definition of love, because God is a trinity. We have been going just for the last couple weeks before I was out of town, uh, looking at this theme in Scripture, the way that the theologians have captured what, what God, how God is described in all the Bible is that God is a trinity. He is three persons in one God. And we've said, yes, that's mysterious, and yes, that's hard for us to get our minds around, but we can gaze into the Bible and see God for who He really is and describe Him that there is only one true God. And He is made up, no, He, he is He exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see that in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus' words as He's sending out His disciples. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, just one name, the name of three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There is one God, and He he exists in three persons. And how, how do these... Three persons uh, uh, within God interact with each other. We said that the very first week we looked at what, what was God doing before the world began. And that's not just some kind of you know, mind game that we're playing. Jesus himself answers that. He prays to the Father in John 17, 24. He says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. For all of eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son in and through the power of God the Spirit. There has been a perfect unity, a perfect love, a perfect relationship that has existed forever and will forever exist. That's why at the very core of who God is, He's love. Because He has always had someone to love, namely His Son. And His Son loved the Father. I know that's mysterious and makes our heads hurt just a little bit to try to think about that. But praise God, He's too big for my head, right? (laughs) You would be in a lot of trouble if God had to fit inside of my little head. You know what I mean? But he's, he's mysterious and beautiful at the same time. We started before creation, and two weeks ago we looked at creation, how God created us in His image, meaning we were created for that relationship. And so today we come forward just to one more, one more section over into chapter 3 in Genesis, and we get a little closer to home, don't we? Because yes, it's amazing to think about eternity past and who God was before all of creation. And it's amazing to think about God's intention for the world and the way things were meant to be and how we're supposed to be in relationship to Him. But we start looking around our world today and we're like, man, things break. <laughs> Relationships struggle. There's pain. There's sorrow in this world. What, what does it mean? Why does, what does God being Trinity have anything to do with today? Why does that matter today? I mean, yeah, maybe Adam and Eve before the fall, maybe things were supposed to be a certain way, but, but what, about, what about now? Well, knowing God is Trinity helps us answer that too. In a book I I keep recommending to anybody who will stop and let me talk to them, uh, it's a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. 
uh, he calls Trinity, he calls the Trinity, the cockpit of all Christian thinking. And what he says, what he means by that is at the very, if you want to try to try to get your mind around what it means to be a Christian, where you can sit for the control room and the levers, the, all that stuff, the way the whole place is driven is by understanding and thinking about the Trinity. And so we think about the fall, we think about what it means to live in a broken world. The Trinity, the Trinity helps us understand what's going on. If we're thinking about God, we can understand who we are and why we're here and what's wrong with the world. Thinking about God as Trinity helps us understand that. We said God is personal. That means our sin is too. If God is personal, then our sin is personal. We didn't just sin against some divine force out there in the world. We sinned against a Heavenly Father who loves us. We went against His intent for creation when we fractured everything. If you've got an outline, it won't be on the screen, but if you're following along in your paper, uh, you can write this in. Sin fractured our relationship with our triune God. Genesis 3 may, may be familiar to you in some ways. Maybe you know the story of how the serpent, uh, who is Satan himself, tempted Eve, who, and then Adam was standing right there the whole time, and, and how they, they, they went against God. And it can be easy to, to kind of skim over that as, as just, hey, I've heard this before. And we, we say, yeah, God, there was a rule and they broke it. But there's something deeper going on. And now that we you know, think through the all of Scripture and we say, okay, God is, God is triune. He's three in one. and We're supposed to be in this relationship with Him. What, what all was going on here? As you look through that, you see the way this, this sin that was entering was about the fact that Adam and Eve were breaking that relationship. There was a bond between man and God. And this chapter is about the breaking, the fracturing of that relationship. In verse 1 in chapter 3, Satan, who's disguised as a serpent, starts by, by questioning this relationship. He says, did God actually say? And you can hear that. Those are sowing seeds of doubt into Eve's mind, into Adam's mind. She begins to, they begin to sow doubts between, uh, between, God, between man and God. Does, is God. Did He really say this? Are you sure? Verse 5, he offers to Eve that if she'll eat the fruit, he says, then you can be like God. He's saying, hey, I, you can change the relationship. You, you, I know God said it was this way, but, but now you can change it. You can flip it, and you can be in charge, and you can have control. He's trying to convince her to overthrow God and, and convince her that, that God, God doesn't really love you like he says he does. He's holding something back from you, and you, you just need to grab it for yourself. That's the temptation that, that, that Satan's giving to Eve to change that relationship. Verse 7, it says their eyes were open, but not in a good way. Verse 8, uh, we read this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of, day, of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why, why are they hiding? They feel shame. They have, they have gone against God. They have broken the relationship, and now they want to hide from Him. What used to be, I mean, apparently this is the, the pattern that the Lord would come in the cool of the day and in some kind of visible form, apparently walk with them in the garden. I mean, this is a picture of, a, of a, enjoying a fruitful relationship in the garden. Amazing, how amazing that would be. And yet they have now fractured it. They broke it, and so now they are hiding. The relationship has been ruptured. God and man had been working, walking together, and now it is separate. This event starts to, to make more sense when we understand who God is as Trinity, who God is as three in one. 
If God had just always been just one person, there weren't three persons in one. If God had just been one person, then at His core, He wouldn't be love. We talked about this a few weeks ago. At His core, God would be power or might or something. But before the world began, if there was no one for Him to love, then He couldn't be love. But now that we understand God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, He is love. So that's what He wanted from, the, from Adam and Eve. He wanted love. What they took from Him, what they, what they broke, was a bond of love. It wasn't just that they disobeyed the rules. If God was just a single person God, He would make laws, He would require obedience, but there would be no relationship. There would be no love. But because He is Trinity, He is Love. Sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is breaking the relationship. When we think of the way we're supposed to obey God, it's not just about whether or not we check all the boxes. It's about are we pursuing a relationship with Him. Jonathan Edwards was probably the United States' best theologian, uh, and he, he was writing before we were even a country in the 1700s. And, and he observed that if all that was required of us was to obey the laws, then there's, there's something in the Scriptures that do a pretty good job of that sometimes, at least outwardly. He said that he notices that on the outward side of it, the way it looks just from the outside, there are some demons who come to Jesus and they do the right things on the outside. Take Luke 8.28, for example. It says, When a man with a demon saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Jonathan Edwards points out, says this, this is external worship. Look at what the devil is doing. He is religious. He's praying. He puts himself in a humble posture. He's bowing down before Jesus. Uh, he uses humble expressions. He uses respectful, honorable, adoring expressions. Jesus, Son of God, Most High. On the outside, that all looks like worship, doesn't it? There's only one thing missing. The demon doesn't love Jesus. The demon doesn't love Jesus. The only thing lacking is love. Because the true God is triune, because He is love at His very core, you can't just have some outward behaviors and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about the relationship. Sin is breaking that relationship. Michael Reeves says that even after sin came into the world, we remained lovers. We love, but we twist that love, don't we? We misdirect it. We pervert it. We were created to love God, and instead we love ourselves and anything else but God. This is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes uh, and eats the forbidden fruit because a love for herself, gaining wisdom for herself, has overcome any love that she had for God. Martin Luther says, uh, said that a person is curved in on himself. That's probably a more theological way of saying being a navel gazer. You know what I mean by that? Navel gazer, just stare at your own navel. Just so focused on ourselves. That is the core of sin. That pride is elevating me above we still love something, we just love ourselves, and that's pride, and that's ugly. Do you know why it hurts you more if a friend lies to you than if that same friend just had muddy shoes and walks through your, your floor, right? Like if you have a rule at your house, hey, everybody takes off their shoe at the, at the door, especially if you've been playing in the mud, 
and your friend comes over and they know the rule and they forget, or even if they deliberately do it and they track mud through your, through your kitchen floor, maybe on your white carpet, you'd be frustrated, right? Like you'd be like, hey man, what's the deal? You know, but you'd be fine. Like you would, you would get over it. But that same friend deliberately lies, deliberately goes against you and, and says something that, that hurts you in a way that's, that's deceitful. That hurts a lot deeper, doesn't it? Because both of them were, were, were commands, rules that you had. Don't walk on the carpet with muddy feet. Don't lie. But one gets at the relationship. One gets at the core of a bond between two people. And our sin against God is more like that. It's breaking the relationship. It's shattering the way God intended for us to walk with Him. When we sin, we are, we are fracturing. We are breaking a relationship that God intended from the beginning. That man and woman would know the God of the universe. That's how it was supposed to be. And sin comes in when we sin against God and we break it. But here's what's even more astounding than that. Is that God's love doesn't quit. God's love doesn't quit in Genesis 3 part 1. It continues for another 65 books and 46 and a half chapters. That was math on the spot. Yeah. His love continues. At the most foundational, God is love, and our sin doesn't stop God from loving. He doesn't stop God from loving. 1 John 4, 8 and 9 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. We sinned against God. We fractured our relationship with the triune God. But here's the good news. Our triune God saves us. Our triune God saves us. We said our sin is personal because God is personal. But the good news is that also our salvation is personal. God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit are at work. He is at work to save us. And this is worth, worth pondering for a moment how He does this. A few weeks ago, uh, I put up some pictures of Yellowstone National Park. Glad that wasn't today. Now think about it. Um, this is one of a screen. But uh, I put some pictures up of, of uh, the lower falls in Yellowstone and talked about how there's, there's all these different vantage points of the falls. And you can hike around all these different places and, and look at the falls from all these different angles and see the, the, the beauty of these falls from different places. And we've said that's what we're kind of doing here with the Trinity. And another way of saying that would be like, like holding up a diamond. If you hold up a diamond and, and you twist it in the light and, and look at it in different ways, different colors come out in different ways. And you can, every angle you look at is a little bit different, but it's the same, same diamond. That's what we're doing here with the Trinity. We're holding up God. Of course, He doesn't fit in our fingers, but here we're holding up God and we're seeing the way the light reflect, ref, reflects through each part, each facet, each side of the diamond. So I, I, want to, I want to hold up salvation to you. I want to hold up what God does in salvation so you can see the light because there are so many colors through this. Because all three persons of the Trinity are at work to bring about your salvation and mine. And it is, it is incredibly beautiful. I want you to see the love He has for us. I want you to see the great work of salvation. I want you to give all glory to God for what He has done. God the Father, beginning with Him, God the Father planned our salvation. Gen uh, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God, be God and be the God and Father. So it's going to tell us about God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God, God chose us. He had a plan. He is the one who is doing the choosing. He's got a plan before the world began. He had a plan. We read that just a few verses down in 1, Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our, our salvation isn't random. God is not just rolling the dice or, or just waiting to see what's going to happen. No, God has a plan. It's not arbitrary. God's not on plan B, C, or Z. God has had a plan from the very beginning of time. And He is in control of every step along the way. And His plans aren't like my plans. Like I write things either down in pencil or put them in my phone because I know I can change them, right? When I make plans, they are very likely to change. God made a plan and it doesn't change. He is immutable. He doesn't change and His plans never change. In Ephesians 1.10, the word uh, for plan gets translated a whole, different, whole bunch of different ways depending on what, what version you're looking at because it's a hard word to bring into English. The NIV says to put into effect. I like that. It isn't just, it's not just an idea in his head. That's the way plans are for me. He puts it into effect. The, the NASB says, an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That doesn't roll off the tongue real well, so I see how the ESV chose plan, but an administration. He's, he's got a plan and he's making it happen. The point is that God is the supremely wise administrator, not just of my life or my schedule, my calendar, but the whole universe. He has got a plan for it all, including our salvation, which meant sending His Son. So what is His plan? His plan has been Jesus from the beginning. God the Son accomplished our salvation. So God the Father planned our salvation, and God the Son accomplished our salvation. God is God, so surely He could have done this in any way He wanted, right? I mean, He's God. He could have come up with whatever plan He wanted. But this is what He chose to do. He chose to display His love in the greatest way imaginable. In His mind, the, the infinite mind of God, He decided for us, for His glory, for our good, this is what's best, that He would sacrifice Himself. That He Himself would die in our place. That is what Jesus has done. There is no greater love imaginable. There's nothing more powerful, nothing more beautiful than the self-sacrificing love that God Himself laid down His life so that you and I can be saved. That is what God has done for us. He, he could have just stayed in heaven, right? We read in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. It could have just stopped right there. Nothing else had to be done. But He, in His own free will, His own love, decided to intervene. John 1, 14 and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on our, uh, our personhood. He became a man walking on the earth so that we could know Him as a man and we could be saved by Him. Because Romans 5.8 says, But God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. That's love. The cross is where God showed us more clearly than anywhere else what love really is. It's, it's self-sacrificing. It's laying down His life. The cross is where God displayed the love and how far He was willing to go for us. 
Oh, what love. Oh, what grace that God has for us. And there's still more. There's still one more part of our salvation and one more member of the Trinity who leads in that work of our salvation. Because you see, if, if God the Father had planned it and God the Son had accomplished it and it stopped there, we still would be dead in our sins because we wouldn't know it. Because God's Word tells us that apart from God's work in us and the Holy Spirit's work in us, we are dead in sin. So Jesus can do His work. If we're still dead, we don't know about it. But that's what makes this work incredible. God the Spirit applies salvation to us. God the Spirit, God the Father planned it, God the Son accomplished it, and God the Spirit applies salvation to us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't, we don't have to be able to say this, we don't have to know exactly what's going on, but here's what the Bible tells us is going on. When we say, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and I repent of my sins and I trust Him as Savior, the only way we can say that in faith is if the Spirit has been at work in our hearts to bring those words out of us, to bring that heart out of us. If it were not for God's work by His Spirit in us, our, our heart spiritually would still be dead. We'd still have a rock in the place of a heart. But because of God's work of putting a new heart in us, we can say those words in faith. And we read, that, we read about that over and over again in Scripture. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, and the crowd said, What, what should we do? What should we do? He says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work. We saw this in Titus 3 when we did uh, baptism here uh, last month. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit. That regeneration, new life. The Spirit brings new life in our hearts. It's the only way we can know what Christ has done for us. John 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Until the Spirit works in your heart and mind, salvation would just be something out there. But because God in His infinite wisdom and might and power and love is also a Spirit, He can come in here. And He can change this heart of stone and bring it to a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for Him, a heart that knows Him. Our sin is personal because it's against a personal God, but God's salvation is personal because He is a Spirit who can live in you. Jesus came and He lived on this earth and there were probably thousands of people who saw Him, but I wasn't one of them. Neither were you. It was 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. But we, don't have to, we didn't have to be there to be saved because God is here. He is personal. He is with us. He is the Spirit who brings us to life. And when that Spirit awakens us, when that Spirit brings us to life, He doesn't just stop on, on day, one, day one when we say, I believe, and He just leaves us alone. No, He keeps working. He keeps working. And that work is a process to actually transform us, to make us more like Jesus Himself. We call that sanctification or, or making us more like Christ himself. It says we were predestined to be conformed into the image of God in Romans 8. We're, we're conformed to the image of Jesus himself. Our lives begin to look like Jesus. We never become Jesus, but we begin to reflect him like we were supposed to, like it was supposed to be in the garden. 
We look at Genesis 3, we look at the brokenness of the world around us, and we say, how could you possibly be doing anything good right now, God? Look at all the sin, look at all the grief, look at all the torment, look at all the suffering in the world. Look at all the poverty that I saw last week. God, where are you? I'll tell you where he is. He's, he's right here. And he's right there in your heart. He has the power to bring life out of death. So he is absolutely at work. And he's bringing salvation. And none of that would be possible if God was just a one-person God. He would just be power. And he would just be saying, obey the rules or else. But because God has always been three persons, because God has always been infinitely loving, because God the Father has always loved God the Son by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that same God can bring love into your heart. He can change your life. We were in Mexico just last week. I was talking with a pastor, and we were talking about different things, and somehow this came up. that One of the biggest lies we believe is that I can't change. We say things like, I'll always be this way. I can't get rid of this sin in my life. I'm addicted to this. I've been in this way my whole life. And these are just the words I use. This is the things I do. This is the addiction I have. This is who I am, and nothing's going to change me. Or we say it about somebody else. He's never going to change. He's always been that way. For as long as I've known him, he's been angry. She's always been bitter. She's whatever. They're never going to change. I'm never going to change. And that is a lie. There's only one being in all the universe who's never changed and never will change, and that's God. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And if you and I try to claim that we'll never change, we're trying to do what Eve did, put ourselves above God. We are changeable because God the Father has had a plan from the beginning of time, and He accomplished it through God the Son when He died and came to earth and died on the cross, and He applies it to your life and to my life when He changes our hearts When the Spirit comes to live inside of us and He transforms us, He changes us. He starts today and He won't stop until we're with Him in glory. That's the work of God. He is at work in us. Marcus Rainsfield was a friend of D.L. Moody. He was a famous uh, evangelist in the 1800s. D.L. Moody asked him about the Trinity. And uh, this is what he said. He He talked about the Father as inviting us into the home, right? And then he says this, Christ's work for me is the payment of my debt that gives me a place in my father's home and the place of sonship in my father's family. And the Holy Spirit's work is to make me fit for his company. I love that. We're invited into the family because our debt's been paid and the Holy Spirit's transforming us so that it's appropriate for us to come into God's presence. Our salvation is a remarkable work of all three persons of the Trinity. See that love and enjoy that relationship. If sin is what fractured our relationship and God is the one who is saving us in that relationship, then that means that relationship is the very thing we're saved for. We are saved for that relationship. Our salvation is a restored relationship with the triune God. That's the last blank there on your page, paper. Our salvation is a restored relationship with our triune God. Salvation isn't about stuff in this world. It's not just about seeing loved ones in heaven. It's not just about relaxing on a beach or something else, you know, your version of heaven. Salvation is about knowing God. Salvation is about a relationship with Him. 
We were saved so that we can know the creator of the universe personally. There's nothing better. God can't give you something better than that. That is the very best thing that he can give you. And that is what salvation is. It is that gift. John 17, 26, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That was Jesus' prayer to the Father. That we would know the same love that the Father has for the Son. It reminds me of one of my all-time favorite passages. I preached the, one of the, maybe a month into being here. In Luke 15, the prodigal son, the, 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 the kind of the climax of that story goes this way. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Salvation is, is coming home. It's coming back to the Father. It's being welcomed back into the family. And it is a work that God the Father has planned from the beginning of time. God the, Spirit, God the Son accomplished in time. And God the Spirit applies to your life right on time. God is at work powerfully. He's brought you to that relationship. And He's called you and invited you to abide in it. That word abide is one we, we put in our mission statement because it's just such a helpful way of understanding what God is like. But this last week, I learned a new word, a Spanish word translated here uh, in John 15, gets used for abide, is permanecer, which I probably totally botched, but permanecer. I just like it because it sounds like permanent. I like, th I like things that are permanent. Abiding with Jesus is not like I come to Jesus on Sunday and then the rest of the week I run my thing. I come back on Sunday. No, no. When we're abiding with Jesus, it is, we are permanently with Him. We have this ongoing relationship with Him. That's what we've been saved for, is knowing Him and walking with Him every day for the rest of eternity. God is at work in a powerful way. If you'll receive that salvation and walk in it, you'll experience that power and that love like never before. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to know You and be known by You. God, we've, we, we come before You every week just longing to see you for who you are, longing to see your glory and your majesty and your power, and longing to experience your love. Father, we, we confess we look so many other places for your love. We look all across to be satisfied in something else. We, we elevate ourselves. We, we focus on our own lives. But God, we, we know that truly, it's only with you that we'll ever truly be satisfied. So God, we plead today that as we, we've seen in your word, your great love, God, we pray that we would turn from our sin and instead walk with you. God, may the same love that was demonstrated before the foundation of the world, the same love that was demonstrated on the cross, the same love that brings our hearts to life, God, may that same love be at work in us today so that we can know you for who you are and glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.